Jesus has been tried by the Jewish leaders who have convened in the middle of the night. And they have condemned Jesus to death under the charge that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Caiaphas says, what else do we need to hear? He's blasphemed and therefore he is worthy of death. Peter at this time has denied the Lord three times in a matter of hours during this night. The other disciples have run away for their lives. From a human perspective, it looks like everything has gone completely wrong. Jesus is now being taken to the Roman authorities for execution. Peter has denied the Lord. The disciples have abandoned him. And nothing appears to be right. We know, as Jesus has said throughout his ministry, that all these things were happening according to the plan and the foreknowledge of God. We even read from Isaiah in the prophecy that prophecy of Isaiah 53 was the will of the Lord to crush him. This is all according to God's plan. And so the things that we're going to look at, even in this chapter this morning, continue to picture a loving God who is rescuing his people through his son. If you have your Bibles and you aren't there yet, Mark 15, we're going to spend our time there this morning. The Jewish leaders have taken Jesus to Pilate for execution. Pilate now asks Jesus if he is the king of the Jews. And Jesus gives a qualified affirmation. Well, you have said so. (laughs) Not really a yes and not really a no. And that qualified affirmation, I think, is understandable. Is he the king of the Jews? Well, in a sense, one way you could say that. But is he the king of the Jews? No, he's the king of the world. He is the savior of all mankind. And so, no, he's not merely the king of the Jews. His rule is not on this plot of territory in Judea. And so, whatever you think, Pilate, uh, that's fine. You say so. that, That works. But... That's really not the the whole of the matter, nor a full picture of exactly who Jesus is. And so you have then uh, Pilate trying to figure out what to do with Jesus. You will notice it says in verse 3, the chief priests are accusing him of many things. Here's Jesus standing before Pilate. Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? Well, you say so. And here are the leaders all just shouting out all the different accusations they could come up with. He said they'd destroy the temple and raise in three days. He says he's the son of man. He says he's the son of God. He says he's the Messiah. He's the son of the blessed one. He's saying all these things. And so Pilate then in verse 4 says, well, do you have an answer to make to all the charges that these leaders keep saying? Do you have something to say to all these things? Yet again, Jesus says nothing. Again, as we looked at last time when all the false witnesses were giving their testimonies, you think about now all these false charges and accusations that are being made. You imagine just standing there silently and not refuting a one of them. He just stands there before Pilate as they continue to lay charges on him. Such the fact that verse 5 says Pilate's just stunned. He's just amazed by the fact that Jesus says nothing. Now it turns out that there's a little bit of an irony that is at stake here. Since it is the time of the Passover, we read here in verse 6 that it was one of the customs of Pilate to allow one of the prisoners to go free. 
That seems pretty reasonable in keeping with Jewish history. Remember that the Passover was to remember how Israel were enslaved in Egypt and God had released them from that slavery by a mighty hand. And this seems to be a tipping of the hat from Rome to the Jewish nation. We will allow one of your own to be released on your Passover, your Freedom Day, your Exodus Day, your freedom from slavery. And this is an attempt of Pilate to be able to get Jesus released. And so who do you want me to release to you? Oh, certainly this this Jesus who is King of the Jews. Or would you rather it be a murderer who in the last uprising and revolution against Rome had killed people? Who will you take? And so that's what Pilate then offers up. And so it is so interesting that it says in verse 9 as he asked them, so you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And the reason why he asked this in verse 10, he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. He knows what's going on. This is not legit. These charges don't match up. There's nothing that he's looking at Jesus and going, boy, this is a serious threat and I am really concerned. All your Discovery Channel shows that are all going to run this week are all going to paint Rome is really nervous by Jesus. Notice Pilate going, this guy? No. The only reason he's here is because you guys are jealous of him. It's the only reason he's here. Pilate sees right through it. He knows exactly what's going on. And so his attempt is to appeal to the crowd. Jesus is a popular person in Jerusalem. This seems to be the obvious tactic. Appeal to the crowd. Take Jesus, right? You want the king of the Jews. You want your king, don't you? Verse 11, the chief priests stir up the crowd. You can imagine the leaders going through the crowd. No, we don't want Jesus. We want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Get them all riled up. Getting all the crowd in a fury. So that's what you see in verse verse 11. They go through the crowd to have Barabbas released and said, So Pilate then says to them again, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? What do you want me to do with this man? Again, Jesus is, is, is here before this crowd. And Pilate's trying to get Jesus released. Look at this one. Here is your king of the Jews. You want me to release him to you? And they say, no, we want Barabbas. Well, what do you want me to do with him? The whole point is, I have nothing to do with him. There's no charge here. There's no basis for execution. There's nothing here to be able to say, well, we need to be concerned about this Jesus. That's why he asked the question, well, you brought him to me. What am I supposed to do with him? The whole point is to release him. All right, you don't like him. Fair enough. Here you go. You can have him back. Verse 13. And they cried out again, crucify him. Pilate said to them, why? Just imagine him saying they're going, why? What evil has he done? Why do you want me to execute him? Why? What's the basis? Notice there's no answer for that in verse 14. They don't say, well, it's because. What do they keep saying? Crucify him. Crucify him. 
Crucify him. Crucify him. It's not a charge. It's not a basis. And 15 says, Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd. They're just going to keep chanting. Crucify him. Pilate releases for them Barabbas. And having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. And now I want you to notice the things that unfold after this. Verse 16, the soldiers are called in. Soldiers lead him away inside the palace as the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion and they clothed him with a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Just imagine the mockery that is happening now. Here is a king, right? So let's put a robe on him. Let's make a crown. Let's put it on his head. And let's just make fun of him. Hey, here's our king. Now remember, he's beaten up after the scourging. That's what we just saw in verse 15. And not only that, it says in verse 19, they were striking his head with a reed. I was looking at history. Most people, most of the historians think, since typically Romans used bamboo to strike their uh, criminals, that that would be a likely reed that that would be used here. So don't picture some small little... So after his scourging and after the crown is on his head, they're beating him in the head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage. Hail, King of the Jews. You really look like a king, don't you? Bloodied up. Crown of thorns on your head. Beating him in the head. Spitting on him. And falsely worshiping in front of him. You're the king. You're the king. Hail Jesus, King of the Jews. Verse 20, when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes and led him out to be crucified. One of the things as we're going through this is I just want us to continue to get a sense of one of the things that the scriptures highlights again and again about the concept of the cross is not only the torturous mechanism it was for death, but that everything about the cross was about shame. Strip naked, throw a robe on him, beat him up, scourge him, crown of thorns on him, beat him in the head, spit on him, mock him some more, bow down in front of him, call him a king, take the robe off, throw his clothes back on, drag him on out. That's what's just going on by these soldiers at this time. It's a, it's a shameful thing. It was the whole intent was to lay utter humiliation upon the victim who was about to be crucified. The complete and utter shame of what the cross was all about. Verse 21. <clears throat> And as they and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of 
Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. That statement is monumental for uh, a lot of reasons. First, it would indicate his Jesus' own inability to carry the cross at this point. Uh, often it is sometimes people think, well, the, the pictures of the scourging that sometimes are happened in movies or trying to describe that, you know, might be over the top. And I would suggest to you it's likely not because he's in such a weakened condition that he's not able to carry this crossbeam to his own death. But remember, once crucified, he only lasts a few hours where most would last days. And so the severity of what has transpired with such succinct words right here is hard for us to get underneath. But a lot has happened in the scourging and the beating. So that as they are taking him outside the city walls to this place of Golgotha, the, the place of the skull, we need somebody to carry this crossbeam because he can't do it. And it is interesting that Mark gives us something that none of the other accounts give us. And we've talked about how when you see something unique in a gospel account, that's a flag to go. There's something special going on here. And that's the naming here of the, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And you would read that and go, well, what's that about? Why Alexander and Rufus? And the most obvious answer to that is the first century Christians who knew who these guys were. They absolutely know who these guys are. And so we don't know the backstory of these two being Christians and did this event cause Simon to become a Christian or when Simon told his kids about, you won't believe what happened to me today, the sons all became Christians one day or how it all played out. But somehow, some way, these two men are known by the Christian community that you would say, hey, remember Simon of Cyrene? You know that you know his the, the, the dad. That's the dad of Alexander and Rufus. That, that's who that was. And why would Mark highlight that? Because one of the things that, that the Gospel of Mark has been all about is about giving us these pictures of discipleship. We have highlighted that again and again and again in our study of this gospel. And I want you to notice that how we are now coming to the end of the account that Mark wants to highlight and say, do you know what a disciple does but carries the king's cross? Here is the king and he is going to his place of execution. And a disciple is then going to need to carry that cross too. It's been the beautiful picture And it is a beautiful picture of this discipleship that we are supposed to have. A beautiful picture of what God is calling for what it means to take up the cross and follow Him is on dramatic display right here as Simon now carries this cross to the place of execution, enduring the horror and the shame and the mockery that would have been on as he walks behind Jesus down this road to His place of execution. This is the picture of what it means to be a disciple. I think verse 24, I I always struggle with that sentence because it's so short, it's so quick, it's so easy to pass by, and all the gospel accounts do it. And they crucified him. There it is. 
They don't go into the nails in the hands and the nails in the feet and the hoisting him up and all that was entailed and all that. They just, the horror of the cross is supposed to just resonate into your mind when you just simply read, they crucified him right there. The Roman soldiers did it. Put the nails in and hang him on a cross. Verse 24 continues, they divide up the garments. They cast lots for his clothes. They decide what they're going to do, what what they're going to take for all of these. And you notice they put a sign up on his head, the charge that is worthy of death in verse 26. The king of the Jews. The inscription would be the reason why an individual was hanging on a cross. That was the whole purpose, is that this is a deterrent. You put a crucified victim in a very public place on the major thoroughfares and highways so that people would walk by, see the crime that was committed, see the individual for what the crime was, and in their hearts would go, I better never do that. It was the whole point. It was a massive deterrent. This is why Rome used it that way. And so here is the villainous charge that hangs over the head of Jesus of why he's sitting there on the path that people can walk by and see you. King of the Jews. There's no crime. There's no charge. There's just Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus goes, you say so. So there you go. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Now please picture the scenes that are happening here because again, notice that the highlight is about the mockery and the shame of these next few sentences. Those who pass by. So again, this is the idea of what a cross is about, is those who are just walking in and out of Jerusalem. The massive thoroughfare of Jerusalem, which is a lot of people right now because it's Passover. All the Jews are coming to Jerusalem. So this is a heavily traversed area. And those who are passing by are going in and out of the gates of the city. In verse 29, they derided him, it says. They're shaking their heads at him. (coughs) Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. (laughs) We heard you say it. Yeah, you who said you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Just imagine the people walking by back and forth saying that. Oh, you said you could destroy a temple and raise it up. Won't you save yourself? What are you doing up there? Some savior. Save yourself. I always read this and I think, What would have we done at that moment? (laughs) I think on my best day, I would have had the nails fly out of my hands and my feet and I would have stood on the ground and said, all right, let's go. And in my worst day, I probably would just barbecue them and go see. (laughs) Yeah, I'm in the Son of God. There you go. Amazing love and perseverance and patience of Jesus here as your own creation is walking by just mocking you, deriding you saying awful things about you 
Verse 31, if that's not enough, all the people passing by who are doing this. Verse 31, the leaders aren't done with him either. Chief priests and the scribes, they're mocking him to each other. You can imagine them all standing in front of the cross looking at him. And here's what they're saying to each other nice and loud. He saved others. He can't save himself. Imagine everybody's walking by. He saved others. He can't save himself. We told you this guy was a nobody. We told you he wasn't the Messiah. We told you he wasn't the one to listen to. We've been telling you that for years. He went around saving others. Can't even save himself right now. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. If you are who you say you are, Let's see it. Remember Jesus a moment earlier had told Caiaphas when he asked, are you the son of the blessed one? I am and you will see me come in the clouds with power. Uh, He saved others. He can't save himself. If he's the Christ, just come on down so we can believe. We'll all believe you if you just step down right now. Let's see it. The mockery continues. And if that's not enough, the end of verse 32. And the two crucified people are also reviling him. So you've got the people going up and down the street. You've got the leader standing in front of him going after him. And the two guys crucified next to you are also going after you. The cross represents horror, shame, and rejection. And amazingly, this is the mechanism of God's salvation. Everything about this scene resonates shame and rejection. He's not from God. He can't be from God. He is too shamed. He is too despised. This is too awful. No one could be from God. In fact, Deuteronomy, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Can't be from God. And this is what all this is about is just piling the shame upon him. And yet this is the means of God's salvation. Remember, Jesus again and again would tell everybody that this was the way he was going to die, that this was all according to the foreknowledge and plan of God. And what we are witnessing is our glorious Lord and Savior having shame upon shame poured upon him. Because even in their culture, so is true with ours. Mockery is not the path of heroes. Right? Mockery is the path of villains. The heroes are put on pedestals and praised and idolized and immortalized. Villains are given horrible deaths that everybody shames and turns their nose up to. That's the kind of death he's experiencing, the kind of shame that is upon him. The cross looks like one thing, and I think this is very important to what we're talking about today. The cross looks like one thing, shame and rejection, shame and rejection, shame and rejection. It is actually God's salvation. It appears one way. But it's actually not that way at all. 
It looks like, but it's not. That's the real irony of the cross. Shame and rejection, everybody's piling on. But this is the plan and the foreknowledge of God. That leads us very importantly into the final events that take place. Verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, that would be 12 noon. There's darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, which would be three in the afternoon. Just imagine that for a minute, three hours of darkness. We have recently got to experience an eclipse and we recognize that eclipses don't make the land dark for three hours. You get a few minutes and that's about it. Not much. Three straight hours of darkness and darkness has always been a symbol, an indicator of God's judgment over and over again. In scriptures, darkness is always doom and judgment. There should have already been some spiritual thought process going on from the people as this event is happening. And in the middle of the day, darkness falls. This is not good for the nation of Israel. This is an imagery of judgment that is going to become falling upon this nation shortly. And you will notice that in verse 34... At the end of that ninth hour, right, as this darkness is coming to a conclusion, Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There are two ways to look at this declaration. One is to take it at face value that we have God the Father abandoning the Son at this moment. And that Jesus is crying out to the Father where the Father is not. He has turned his back and he is not with the Son any longer. And I believe it would require us to have some weighty evidence to suggest otherwise. Because that what appears to be what the text is saying. But I do believe that there is very weighty evidence to consider another point of view as to why Jesus would say these words. Number one, we ought to consider that Jesus predicted the events that have just transpired. And John's gospel gives us a very important detail about Jesus' prediction about how this was going to all unfold. In John 16, you might remember, this is John 16 is when he's together with them, and so he's telling them about what's about to take place. He tells them the hour is coming, indeed has come, when you will be scattered. Remember, we saw Mark's version of that, his account of that. Each to his own home and you will leave me alone. So you all are going to disperse and abandon me. You are all going to leave me. And Jesus told them that. But notice what else he said. Yet I'm not alone. For the Father's with me. The disciples would disperse and leave him alone. But Jesus says, there's going to be one who's not going to leave me. The Father. In fact, it's important to recognize that Isaiah's prophecy reels in very important here in Isaiah 53. A passage we know well about despised and rejected a man of sorrows equated with grief. And you notice in verse 4 it says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And please 
carefully read what Isaiah said because sometimes we read this as if it says, and God struck him down and afflicted him, but that's not what Isaiah says happens. What Isaiah says is everybody's going to consider him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, which is what we're watching happen in this very scene. What is everybody saying? You can't be from God. You're rejected by God. You have shame upon shame upon you. If you are really the Messiah, come down here so that we may believe. You can't even save yourself. How can you possibly save others? Isaiah predicted that. That what everybody is going to do is look at him and say, they're going to value him or esteem him, consider him as struck down by God. Interesting that he terms it that way. And Isaiah doesn't say, and God struck him down, but that's the way it's going to look. It's going to look very badly as all of these events are unfolding. You may also recognize, and you probably have a footnote in your Bible that indicates this to you, is that Psalm 22 is the beginning of this declaration. In saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's actually quoting scripture interestingly enough he states something from the scriptures and again we've noted that when the gospels are unique we should highlight it in mark's gospel mark only has one saying from the cross and it's this one very interesting doesn't have all the other ones we know there's seven mark just says i want you to pay attention to this one right here my god my god why have you forsaken me That psalm is a fascinating psalm because if you read Psalm 22, you will know that it is a prayer from a righteous sufferer. That's what the whole psalm is about. Is what happens is David is expressing extraordinary suffering as a follower of God. In fact, you will have like Psalm 22 in verse 6. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. That's Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8. That's what just happened. That's what the people are doing right now is walking by and wagging their heads and saying these very words. Listen to Psalm 22, verse 14. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. That all just happened too. The whole crucifixion scene is found in Psalm 22. And it is so fascinating that you have Jesus then saying these words with at minimum, at minimum, an attempt to get the passerbys and those who are standing there to think. 
You're saying the very words that the prophets prophesied. You guys that are dividing my clothes, that's in the scriptures. The words you are saying about me, that's in the scriptures. You piercing my hands and feet, that's in the scriptures. Every single thing that you have done and you have said is prophesied. David said it in Psalm 22. That's at minimum at play. As Jesus would say those words. But it's also important to understand the message of the psalm. Listen to what happens in the middle of the psalm as the psalm traverses this cry of the righteous sufferer. Remember, he, the psalmist begins by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me in verse 1? Now listen to what he says in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of, dog, of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Notice he's not praying and saying, well, God must be gone and I'm doomed to die. No, the prayer of the righteous sufferer is now come to my rescue. Come to my aid. Don't be afar off. Come in and vindicate. Come in and save. Come in and rescue and deliver me from this. And the very next words that come out of Psalm 22, verse 21. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. That's Hebrews 2 right there, quoting to Jesus as well. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All the offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And listen to it. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Notice that Psalm 22 says it's going to look like one thing, but it's actually going to be something different. And here is this cry of the righteous sufferer. Where have you been? Why have you forsaken me? And then as the psalm moves forward, as he describes all of his suffering and all of his pain, he then cries out to God, don't be far away from me. Deliver me and rescue me. And then you have this triumphal conclusion of the psalm, which says, that's exactly what you've done. In fact, you have not turned your face from me. You haven't hidden yourself from me. You have listened to me and you have responded, which I believe is exactly the idea of what we see happening in this very scene. That we are seeing the vindication of Jesus. Notice what happens. And after he says these words and a sponge of sour wine is is put up to his mouth to drink, verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. 
fulfillment of what Psalm 22 is all about. Is that God had not forsaken him at all, but a vindication happens. The darkness is going to lift, and you are going to see then that the picture is that it is the acceptance of God, but the rejection of the world. It's the message of Psalm 22. You will be rejected by the world. All these people are causing the suffering surrounding him, but God is with the righteous sufferer. And in the same way, you see that with Jesus. And rather than just kind of summarizing this scholar, I thought I would not plagiarize him and just read what he says because I thought it was just brilliant. He says about this, Jesus therefore did not simply let out an anguished wail of pain, but deliberately quoted this lament, which moves from an expression of pain to confidence in God's deliverance. Why would Jesus cry out to an absent God unless he believed that God was indeed there to hear and able to deliver him? The Jews in Jesus' day were immersed in the scripture the way moderns are immersed in television and movies. And they would know that Psalm 22 begins with despair, but ends on a triumphant note. Be like if I told you the beginning of Star Wars and all the travail of Luke Skywalker, and you'd be like, Well, I know how that ends. (laughs) Well, they knew how that psalm ended when you started it. We know how that, that song plays out. The very message then is that God answers, the darkness lifts, the curtain is torn from top to bottom. Which, friends, that is the gospel coming full circle. Do you remember how the gospel started? No, it was a year ago. I know. Mark 1. Jesus at the baptism. And Mark carefully records that the Father tore open the sky and said, This is my Son. And now at the crucifixion of Jesus, the Father tears open the curtain of the temple. And a Gentile proclaims, that's the Son of God. The gospel has made its full loop around in showing us this is the Son of God. The temple's forsaken. Jesus is not. Jesus will be raised. The temple will not. Judgment is coming upon Israel. Jesus will be vindicated three days later as the righteous sufferer who cries out to God. I have four points, but don't worry, they will be fast. Number one. The message of this is just amazing. Number one. The four movements of this chapter that we've seen this morning. The innocent is crucified so that guilty rebels can be set free. You can't miss where Barabbas. We are guilty, worthy of death, and it's only because of Jesus we're able to be set free. It's the very first picture given as we move through this chapter. The guilty rebel ought to be executed. Instead, he's let go. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does for us. Number two. The mockery of Jesus that God clearly cannot be working through this suffering person. That is fills this. There's just this mockery of, of Jesus. God cannot be working through you. You can't be who you say you are. It's absolutely impossible. 
And what we do is we learn a critical message about discipleship here. God does work through suffering and difficulty and weakness. And he remains present with those who suffer for him. That is a big deal in this scene. Everybody looks at it and says, you can't be a follower of God because you're going through bad things, Christian. And God again and again shows, no, I work through your suffering and through your difficulty and through your pain and am with you every step of the way. Jesus is the model of that. In Jesus, you see that God has not abandoned him, but is with him through the suffering. This is the means of salvation. Or to use Jesus' own words in John, this is the path to glory. Is through the shame, through the suffering, through the cross. God does work through our suffering. And just because something looks terrible in our lives does not mean that God is not there. And nor does it mean that this is not a part of God's plan. It's a very big deal right here. What Jesus is going through does not mean that God is not there. And it does not mean that this is not God's plan. It is God's plan. And God is there. It just doesn't look like it. It's a human perspective. Huge message that God works through our suffering, difficulty, and weakness. Number three, we looked at it very quickly a moment ago. I'll remind you of it. The disciple carries the cross of Jesus and accepts the shame. We are Simon, and we're supposed to carry the cross. We are the ones who are to allow ourselves to accept the shame of the cross to follow him. And the reason we can do that is because of the previous point we just looked at. We can experience shame, and shame, suffering, sacrifice, loss, ridicule, and whatever the world can throw at us because it doesn't matter what the world thinks or what it looks like in this life. We know that God is with us and works through those things. That's how we can accept that to happen. Just as Jesus did, we do likewise, and we recognize where we are before our God in that that God can work through us. Thus we deny ourselves We carry the cross and we follow him. And number four, we're the centurion. Who then we go out and proclaim, truly that one is the son of God. We go around telling everybody, this one is truly the son of God. We confess and we are not ashamed of the cross or the gospel message because it is the power for salvation. And Mark beautifully puts those four scenes together so that we can see in our Savior not only how glorious He is, but what it looks like 
to be a disciple of his and carry the king's cross and follow him. We encourage you to come to Jesus this very morning and turn away from your sins. Be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and see a glorious Jesus and all that he endured and all that he suffered and all the shame that he bore and the death that he experienced. And what will we then tell him? That it was too inconvenient, that we could not be bothered by it, that it wasn't worth it to us, that we didn't care. Or that we are willing to accept the mockery, carry the cross, disregard the shame, and follow him faithfully because we know he is with us, that he will never leave us or forsake us. Won't you come to Jesus now while we stand and while we sing?